Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11. Tonight we come to a challenging text in a book that has more than one of them. And so Leviticus 11, in the context of the book, is the first of several chapters that deal with the issue of ritual purity. These laws were given after the death of Nadab and Abihu, which we saw last week in chapter 10, and before the instructions concerning the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. And so as we look to chapter 11 and read through the chapter, we'll kind of kind of be breaking up the, the reading, and I'll be making some comments along the way, uh, helping us see what's going on so that we don't kind of get lost in what is being said. And so the, the first eight verses of the chapter give instructions in regard to what land animals are clean and which are unclean, which may be eaten and which may not be eaten. And so Moses writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and this is what we read beginning in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, these are the creatures which you may eat from all the land animals, excuse me, from all the animals that are on the earth, whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hoofs, and choose the cud among the animals that you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these among those which chew the cud or among those which divide the hoof. The camel, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. Likewise, the chaffin. For though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. The rabbit also, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. And the pig, for though it divides the hoof, thus making a split hoof, it does not chew the cud, it is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their carcasses, they are unclean to you. And so... Uh, the short here is that an animal which divided the hoof and chewed the cud could be eaten. Those that did not divide the hoof and chew the cud could not. And then some specific examples are given. We have the camel, the chaffin, the rabbit, and the pig. And just, uh, just to note here right at the beginning, the identity and the identification of some of these animals is a little bit, a little bit questionable in that you have... Uh, some issues of, of translation and some uh, some issues arising from the fact that we're not necessarily as familiar with the animals that are there today, let alone the animals that were there in the days of Moses and when the Israelites first went in. And so, um, and so, with respect to, to some of the identifications, it's uh, it's a little bit difficult, uh, a little bit difficult to tell, especially as we get into uh, some of the things regarding some of the birds and and so forth. Um, and so I want to I want to be a little bit a little bit loose as to what the precise identification of these things are, and not not spend too much time trying to trying to chase down and nail down precisely what every animal is. Now we've seen the provisions with respect to land animals, verses 1 through 8. Verses 9 through 12 lay out the rules for for the fish, which fish could be eaten, which ones not. So beginning in verse 9, these you may eat, whatever is in the water. All that have fins and scales, those in the water, in the seas or in the rivers you may eat. 
But whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales among all the teeming life of the water and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable to you and they are uh, they shall be abhorrent to you. You shall not eat their flesh and their carcasses. You shall detest whatever is in the water and does not have fins and scales is abhorrent to you. And then in what follows in verses 13 through 19, we have the rules for which birds or flying creatures could not be eaten. So beginning in verse 13, these moreover you shall detest among the birds. They are abhorrent not to be eaten. The eagle and the vulture and the buzzard and the kite and the falcon in its kind, every raven in its kind, the ostrich and the owl and the seagull and the hawk in its kind, the little owl, the cormorant and the great owl, and the white owl and the pelican and the carrion vulture and the stork, the heron in its kinds, and the hoopoe and the bat. And then verses 20 through 23 give us instructions in regard to which insects could be consumed and which ones could not be. Verse 20, all the winged insects that walk on all fours are detestable to you, yet these you may eat among all the winged insects which walk on all four, those which have above their feet jointed legs with which to jump on the earth. These of them you may eat, the locust in its kind, the devastating locust in its kind, the cricket in its kinds, and the grasshopper in its kinds. But all other winged insects which are four-footed are detestable to you. And then... Uh, in the following section, in verses 24 through 26, we find it demonstrated that it is not merely the, the eating of those unclean animals which would make one unclean, but also the touching of their carcasses, that is, the touching of their dead bodies would make one unclean. And then, uh, at least in the way uh, my translation divides up the paragraph, verses 27 and 28 are also included in that paragraph. In verses 27 and 28... Uh, expands the list of unclean animals to include those that walk on their paws. And so this would include dogs, wolves, lions, bears, and so on. So verses 24 through 28, this is what we find. By these, moreover, you will be made unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses becomes unclean until evening, and whoever picks up any of their carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. So this is spoken with respect to those animals which had come before. And then verse 26, concerning all the animals which divide the hoof, but do not make a split hoof, or which do not chew the cud, they are unclean to you. Whoever touches them becomes unclean. Also, whatever walks on its paws among all the creatures that walk on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcasses becomes unclean until evening. And the one who picks up their carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. They are unclean to you. And then in the, the following section, verses 29 through 38, we read about the swarming things or creeping things which are to be regarded as unclean. We're given a list here at the beginning of the section of eight rodents and or reptiles. Uh, and then we're told about the uncleanness which their dead carcasses would cause and how that uncleanness was to be treated in different respects. 
So beginning in verse 29, Now these are to you the unclean among the swarming things which swarm the earth, the mole and the mouse and the great lizard in its kind, and the gecko and the crocodile and the lizard and the sand reptile and the chameleon. These are to you the unclean among all the swarming things, and whoever touches them when they are dead becomes unclean until evening. Also, anything on which one of them may fall when they are dead becomes unclean, including any wooden article or clothing or a skin or a sack or any article of which use is made. It shall be put in the water and be unclean until evening. Then it becomes clean. As for any earthenware vessel into which one of them may fall, whatever is in it becomes unclean, and you shall break the vessel. Any of the food which may be eaten on which water comes shall become unclean, and any liquid which may be drunk in every vessel shall become unclean. Everything, moreover, on which part of their carcass may fall shall become unclean. An oven or a stove shall be smashed. They are unclean and shall continue as unclean to you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern collecting water shall be clean, though the one who touches their carcass shall be unclean. If a part of their carcass falls on any seed for sowing, which is to be sown, it is clean. Though if water is put on the seed and a part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. And then verses 39 and 40 describe the uncleanness caused from an edible animal who died, that is, died from some other cause other than slaughter for for food or slaughter for sacrifice. So this is in regard, in other words, to to animals that, that died on their own or which were killed by wild animals. The touching of its carcass or the eating of its flesh made one unclean. And uh, though the, the law is not explicit here, if you, look at, if you look at the law as it's given in Deuteronomy 14, especially for, uh, chapter 14, verse 21 of Deuteronomy, it makes it clear that the Israelites were not to, uh, were not to be eating of this, uh, this type of meat which would have ordinarily been permitted but had died of itself. It says you can, you can give it to the, the foreigner or to the alien who lives among you, but uh, for the Israelites it was not to be eaten. And I, I mention this because, uh, because sometimes, uh, as, and as we, as we go further on in the book, it will become clear that just because something is unclean or just because someone becomes unclean because of something, it's no sign that they are necessarily in sin. And so uh, if someone is sinning, they are unclean, but there is uncleanness in the Levitical law that does not spring from something that is necessarily sinful in and of itself. And so, uh, so it is that some commentators uh, would, would take verses 39 and 40 and would, uh, would say that what died of itself is allowed to the Israelites to eat. But the law in Deuteronomy 14.21 seem, would seem to argue against that. And so the law as it's written here, verses 39 and 40, also if one of the animals dies which you have for food, the one who touches its carcass becomes unclean until evening. He too... Who eats some of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening, and the one who picks up its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And then in what follows in verses 41 through 43, we 
apparently have an expansion on what is classified as unclean among the swarming things, and those are enumerated in verse 42, including those which crawl on their belly. So think snakes, anything else that would, would do that. And the reason for avoiding the swarming things then is given in verses 44 and 45. And though the reason is explicitly tied to what comes right before it, namely these, these swarming things, uh, nevertheless, this, uh, the reason for this prohibition here, verses 44 and 45, seems, I think, to apply more broadly to, to everything that comes before it in, in the chapter. It applies to all of these dietary prohibitions, namely that the people are to avoid these things because they're to be holy as the Lord is holy. And so let's read verses 41 through 45. Now every swarming thing that swarms on the earth is detestable not to be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly, whatever walks on all fours, whatever has many feet in respect to every swarming thing that swarms on the earth, you shall not eat them, for they are detestable. Do not render yourselves detestable through them, uh, excuse me, through any of the swarming things that swarm, and you shall not make yourselves unclean with them, so that you become unclean. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy, and you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then verses 46 and 47 kind of round off the chapter and uh, recapitulate what is being stated here. This is the law regarding the animal and the bird, every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. So that's, that's Leviticus 11 in a nutshell. Now the obvious question confronting us is, what are we supposed to do with this? We'll start with the obvious. The ceremonial law is not binding upon us as Christians. I remember once when I was a boy, probably second, third, fourth grade, something like that, I remember hearing a sermon in church that dealt with part of the dietary law in the Old Testament. And I don't know, I, 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 don't, I have basically no memories of what was being said from the pulpit. And so uh, I don't know if the appropriate caveats were made and I missed them or if I was zoned out for those caveats. But I was like, huh, I wonder if sausage is out, no more pizza. You know, I was, I was, I was beginning to wonder. And, but we know that this is not the case. We know that the ceremonial law is not binding upon us, and we know this in part by what we read from the lips of Jesus in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus says, Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? And then interestingly enough, in Mark 7, 19, the, the gospel writer Mark inserts a parenthetical comment into the text, and he makes a comment on what Jesus has said there. He said, thus he declared all foods clean. And likewise, Paul says in Romans 14, 14, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Again, he says in Romans 14, 20, all things indeed are clean. The English Reformed theologian William Perkins said that liberty from sin, death, and the ceremonial law is the treasure of the church. That's true. 
Liberty from sin, death, and the ceremonial law is the treasure of the church. And so these laws are not binding on us as New Covenant believers, but nevertheless, I think two big questions remain. One, why did God give these laws to Israel? And two, even though they're not binding on us, what should we glean from them? All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so how does this chapter teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness? Now as to the first question, why were these laws given to Israel, various answers have been given. Some have taken the, uh, the view that has been called the, the symbolic view and have argued that these prohibitions were designed to teach the Israelites and therefore also us some kind of spiritual lesson. And this, uh, this view, for instance, was the one which was held by, uh, by the reformer Henry Bullinger. And so Bullinger said this. He said, God would have the nature and disposition of the beasts that he forbade to be eaten to be thoroughly scanned. For in their diet at the table, he did by figures lay before their eyes the heavenly philosophy, giving them occasion even in their meat to think and speak of the true holiness of mind to the end that men should not be filthy, impudent, foul, and unclean. Of four-footed beasts, uh, four by name, we are especially forbidden. The camel, whose long and lofty neck doth teach us that pride and arrogancy must be eschewed. The coney, or the mountain mouse, I think it's the chaffin here in the New American Standard text, uh, for God doth utterly mislike the men that are altogether overwhelmed like conies in the earth and never lift up their minds unto heaven. The hare, a fearful beast, which doth warn us to shake off all cowardly fearfulness, even as also... God does put us in mind to avoid all cleanness, for a hog is the very type and picture of nasty filthiness, and of it does the byword arise to call an uncleanly person a beastly swine. Couldn't get away with that today, but apparently you could in the 16th century, call someone a beastly swine. Of birds, those are forbidden, which are the greatest raveners and devourers, which love and live by unclean means which fly abroad at owl light at midnight and in the dark, and such as are crafty, unstable, and nothing cheerful. Herein, therefore, is commended unto us well-doing, abstinence, temperance, simplicity, light, constancy, cheerfulness, soundness, and pureness of living. Now, with all due respect to Henry Bullinger, I'm not sure, really not sure that those are the reasons for which these laws were given. Now, fundamentally, I like the morals that he draws out, and I think those are, those are good morals for us as Christians, but I don't think that those are warranted by the text of Leviticus 11. If I wanted to preach on cheerfulness, I would be more likely to preach on Proverbs 17:22. Cheerful heart does good like a medicine than to preach from the kinds of birds which are forbidden. These fly around at night and, and <laughs> all the rest. And moreover, I think... Here's perhaps an even more substantial critique, is that some of the animals that are here spoken of as unclean are elsewhere spoken of highly. So among the, the unclean birds, the first listed is the eagle. Think of Isaiah 40, 31. Those that trust, upon, trust in the Lord shall renew their strength and mount up with wings as eagles. Think of the words of Agur in Proverbs chapter 30. Among those things which he claims are too wonderful for him, things which he does not understand. He mentions an eagle in the sky, the wave of a serpent, 
on the rock, Proverbs 30, 18 and 19. He refers to the Shaphanim as a small but exceedingly wise animal. Proverbs 30, 26, the Shaphan is the one that is referred to as unclean in verse 5 of our text. Likewise, Agar refers to the lion as being stately in its march. But the law of verse 27 here puts the lion into the category of unclean animals, walks on its paws. And so whatever might be said for the symbolic view, there are some reasons, even biblical reasons, to suppose that this is not actually the case here. Some have thought that the laws were given for health reasons, that the meat of clean animals is healthier than the meat of those that are classified as unclean. And while perhaps you might be able to make the argument in some cases, this does not seem to me at least to be sustainable across the board. Not that I have any dietary qualifications or training. I can understand that someone might argue that beef is healthier than pork, maybe a lower fat content in in beef, and therefore beef is unclean, and pork, beef is clean, and pork is unclean. But whatever might be said on that score, it's not immediately clear to me why beef would be more healthy than, say, the meat of a rabbit. It's pretty lean, meat of a rabbit. Calvin would have none of this. He said, "Those who imagine that God here had regard to their health, as if discharging the office of a physician, pervert by their vain speculation the whole force and utility of this law." So Calvin, Calvin's not having any of uh, of health reasons for, for the law of Leviticus 11. Others have thought that the reason for the law was theological, to forbid the Israelites from eating animals which were, were worshipped by the idolatrous nations around them. But the view runs into trouble in respect to the fact, just for instance, of the bull, which is worshipped among Canaanite and Egyptian peoples, but yet still regarded here as clean. My own tendency is to think, and I'm not alone in this, is to think that the laws were given to the Israelites to teach them obedience, to function as it were as a schoolmaster, to point them to Christ. And, and here's perhaps even a more fundamental element, is that they were given by reason to separate them from the pagan nations around them. In context, that seems to be the the only reason in the text here that is given. That they were to be holy as the Lord is holy. They were to be a separate people for the Lord, and this was one way of doing it. Constraining their diet in these ways. Constraining their practice in these ways. In giving them a unique and particular and rigorous dietary code, the Lord seems to have set this nation apart for himself until the coming of Christ. Calvin expressed it this way, that the object of this ordinance was lest they who were God's sacred and peculiar people should freely and promiscuously communicate with the Gentiles. And in this respect, I think that there is something that can be gleaned from Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10 when he received... Uh, with this vision that he received before he was summoned to go to the house of Cornelius. And you may remember that scene in Acts chapter 10. Peter saw the sheet coming down. What was it filled with? It was filled with all kinds of four-footed animals, crawling creatures of the earth, birds of the air, things which were unclean. And he hears the voice, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. The answer is, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unclean or unholy. He sees on that sheet... Some of the animals of Leviticus 11, he hears the voice, get up and eat. He says, I'm not going to do that. I've never done that. And 
The voice replied, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Obviously, in the context of Acts 10, this vision was pointing to the inclusion of the Gentiles. Now that Christ has come and lived and died and risen and ascended. And Peter, therefore, should not refuse to go to the home of Cornelius to preach to him, to admit him into the fellowship of the Christian church by means of baptism. And when he went to Cornelius' house, this is what he said in Acts 10, 28. He said, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. And how did God show him that? God showed him that by means of the vision with all of those unclean things on, on it, telling him that he must not consider unholy that which God has cleansed. All of that to say, I think there's, there's good reason uh, to believe that the laws of this chapter are given as a means of, of separating the nation of Israel from the nations of the world, setting them apart to be a holy nation to the Lord until the promise of the Messiah was realized. And if you, you think of the plan of salvation as it's laid out in the Old Testament, the promises with respect to the Messiah are very specific. And they, they get more specific as history goes along. You have the broad promise, Genesis 3, that the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The promise gets more specific when you have Abraham, that in you all nations of the earth will be blessed. It gets even more specific that he would be a descendant of Judah. Think of the, the blessing that Jacob gave to his 12 sons. And then even more specific as you go further on, that he would be a descendant of David. One of the ways of, in the Lord's providence of, of maintaining the distinct national identity of the people so that the Christ would come from them and come into the world seems to have been giving them a distinct national identity in part by means of their dietary laws and what was to be considered clean and unclean. And so again, verses 44 and 45, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Again, uh, this obviously is uh, a debated issue. There are lots of views as far as, uh, as, far as why the law was given, but... I hope I've at least given, given you a helpful sampling and pointed out that, that some of them seem to be more shaky, and I've tried to, tried to assert what I think is, is a more helpful way of approaching uh, the law here in Leviticus 11. So that, that's with respect to why was this law given to them. And that brings us then to the second question, which is what are we to glean from these laws as New Testament believers. Again, obviously, it's not instruction about eating. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 is abundantly clear. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so it's not about eating and drinking. Again, think Romans 14. Paul says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And what is interesting, though, is that Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, in his call to believers to be holy, quotes from Leviticus 11. So 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, 14 through 16, 
uh, that passage that we read this morning together. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the form of lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. But, again, our holiness does not consist in matters of food and drink, which were a mere shadow of what was to come. Now, I read this morning a brief excerpt from the, the epistle uh, to Diognetus, which describes how Christians are, are in the world, but not of the world. And this is, this is another section where uh, it kind of deals with what does not make us distinct as Christians, and what does make us distinct. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe, for they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of the conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according to the lot, each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing and food and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. And so the, the point is that they, they live scattered all throughout the world. They, they're going to dress like other people. They're going to look like other people. By and large, their conduct is going to look like other people in that they go to the market and buy their food. They show up at work on time. They do their job with honor, etc. But it's in the midst of all of these things that they show forth a wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. And so externally, we're, we're going to look a lot like the surrounding world. Our food is going to look like the world's food. Our clothes are going to look like the world's clothes. Now, granted, we might have to make some adjustments due to modesty and those kinds of things. Fair enough. But you see the point. Ultimately, we're not distinguished by these external things. And so then, what is it that does distinguish a Christian from the world? Well, it's purity of heart that manifests itself in pureness of living before God. It is a clean heart and clean living which distinguishes a Christian from the world. And so again, to quote the words of Jesus in Mark 7, he says, there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Again, he says, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated? That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of those things, evil things, proceed from within and defile the man. And so the holiness that we are to pursue is to be pursued first and foremost in coming to Christ and in being washed by him, right? Because naturally, our hearts are the wicked kinds of hearts that Jesus is describing there in Mark 7. Naturally, from out of all of uh, our hearts flow these things which defile us. Those, uh, those lists of sins that Jesus described defile us. They naturally come out of our hearts. And so the first thing to do in order to be cleansed from these things is to come to Christ and be washed 
by him. And therefore, uh, Paul, after listing those sins, uh, which those who commit will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, sanctified, made holy, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And this, this holiness or distinctiveness from the world is to be pursued as we continually devote ourselves to the Lord as we refuse to be conformed to this world, but rather as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so we find this, this promise of God and call from God to holiness in Second Corinthians 6, 16 and following, where the Lord says, I will dwell in them and walk among them and will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. Kinds of things we've been reading about here, right? It's talking about people not touching unclean things. And when Paul gives the instruction in Second Corinthians, he's not talking about touching a dead insect. He's talking about touching these things in the world with our hearts that will defile us and bring us away from the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so this, I think, is what we ought to be gleaning from these, these dietary laws, is to learn to turn away from and cleanse ourselves from these things that defile flesh and spirit, and instead perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We're to be holy because He is holy. We're to be devoted to Him because he has redeemed us. Notice, uh, notice what he says there in verse 45. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. The command and call to holiness is based upon what the Lord has already done. He had already brought the people and redeemed them out of Egypt. They belonged to him. They were to be his. And he says, thus you shall be holy, because I am holy. His people were to be like him. And even so, it is with us. Just think of, uh, think of Titus chapter 2, where, uh, where Christ is said to have redeemed people for himself who were to be zealous for, for good works, zealous for good deeds. And so this is what we're supposed to be about. We're supposed to be holy because he is holy. Pursuing that holiness means that we have to keep a close eye on that with which we are interacting. And in some instances, with whom we are interacting. And so we want to remember always that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, that it's what comes out of our hearts that defiles us. And so let's take a step back then. What is it that comes out of our hearts? Well, what are we, what are we putting into our hearts? What are we reading? What are we looking at? What are we watching? We need to be thoughtful about those things. We need to, in verse, as verse 47 points, uh, puts it, make a distinction between the unclean and the clean. We need to see what's going to defile us versus what is going to, to help, us on our, help us on in our walk with God. Are the things that we're reading and watching and listening to, talking about, etc., are they going to be leading us toward the fear and love of God? or away from the fear and love of God. We have to put aside the one, we have to pursue the other. If we're going to be doing what Romans 12 calls us to do in presenting our bodies to God as a living and holy 
sacrifice. And so may God give us all grace to distinguish between the things that differ and choose godliness, choose righteousness, choose holiness by the power of the Spirit working within us. Let's pray. Father, we know that this is a, a difficult text of Scripture, and so, Lord, we pray that you give us, give us humility, give us grace, that we, may, that we may understand it. We pray for wisdom from your Spirit, and Lord, we ask that you would help us, because we know clearly that you've called us to, to pursue holiness and to put aside those things that defile us. Lord, we pray that you would, would give us consciences which are, which are skillful in distinguishing between the clean and the unclean, not so that we can be prideful or puff ourselves up or think that we can make ourselves somehow acceptable to you, but rather, Lord, we ask that you would help us so that we can walk faithfully before you, so that we can be zealous for good works, so that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We ask your help and we ask for your strength. In Jesus' name. Amen.